Our scripture reading this afternoon is from the letter to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 3 and 4. Just a quick explanation for this reading. This is a bit of a long scripture reading. I was going to do even part of chapter 5, but I thought that might be pushing my luck. Uh, but the reason for, for doing a long reading is uh, I want to show how, how Paul is, is making here in Galatians a single sustained argument uh, through, through these chapters. Uh, the context for this message was uh, Paul was writing to these Gentile, uh, Gentile churches who, who had become Christians and uh, were now being infiltrated by, by some Jews who were teaching them, you need to follow the law of Moses in order to be, be saved. Uh, so you need to keep all of the Sabbaths and ceremonial laws. Uh, and Paul argues against that, and the argument that he, he makes uh, is very important for us to understand uh, today because it will teach us, in accordance with our reading from the Catechism, will teach us how to think about the law in the life of believers today. Uh, so what, what function did it have then in the Old Testament? What function does it have in our life today? That's what we want to be uh, paying attention to and looking for uh, in, in our reading. Galatians 3 then, beginning in verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? 
It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law, then, contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But scripture, the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons." And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do not listen to the law. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born, according, was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. 
For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So far, our reading from the Word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 1, all stanzas. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, a summary of the Christian faith and the confession of this church. We find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 34, the very beginning of a section on the Ten Commandments. We're not going to read too much of uh, the Catechism uh, this this afternoon. We're going to be just uh, looking at the introduction to the law. So we'll read just a little bit from... Uh, the first question and answer, uh, and then also the second. So Lord's Day 34, question and answer number 92. What is the law of the Lord? God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And you've heard the rest of the law this morning. We'll focus just on that introduction. And then also question 93, How are all of these commandments divided? Into two parts. The first teaches us how to live in relation to God. The second, what duties we owe our neighbor. So far, the catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as I just mentioned this afternoon, we are beginning a series of sermons working our way through the Ten Commandments of the Law of God. This is something that, if you've been raised in our church, you know that we do this regularly every couple of years or so, and we use the Heidelberg Catechism as the template for our afternoon sermons, teaching sermons, where we learn what the Word of God teaches concerning concerning the Christian faith and life. Uh, And and this is something that in the church we believe is important to do. Uh, Last week, when we considered uh, the idea of repentance and conversion, it's really one of the core pieces of the Christian gospel, we finished with this idea that when when God brings people to repentance, He instills in them new desires, new life, new affections, Things that they used to love, they now hate. Things that they used to hate or despise or think little of, they find themselves now loving. Uh, That's the new heart God works in us. Uh, And that's really, we want to keep that as our focus now, as we start to look at the Ten Commandments, this idea that God is teaching us what He loves, that we would learn to love it. And God is teaching us what He hates, that we would learn also to hate it. It's learning to see what is good and to see what is evil and to have the right corresponding affections. Now, when we do this, as we work our way through the Ten Commandments, every time we we have to acknowledge that there are certain pitfalls uh, that we need to watch out for. 
Uh, And there are two particular pitfalls that we especially want to be on the lookout for. In the first place, there's a great danger that as we study the law of God, we begin to start thinking, this is what makes us righteous before God. It's a very real danger. It happens to us almost invariably every time we study the commandments. We begin to think, this is how God is measuring us, uh, and, this, and we therefore need to make sure that we measure up to God's standard, otherwise we are not righteous before God. That's a very real danger, and the, the uh, antidote to that danger is as we work through the Ten Commandments, we need to hold in front of ourselves and not let go of the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ for undeserving sinners. The only thing, the only thing that makes us righteous before God is the blood of Christ poured out for us. None of your commandment keeping will ever make you right with God. You're right with God in Christ, and that is all the righteousness you'll ever need. There is an opposite danger, a ditch on the other side of the road, as it were, that as we study the law, we dismiss the law. We we dismiss it as something that we really don't need to pay attention to because we're already righteous in Christ. Uh, We we tend to say, you know, we're, we're under God's grace, we're not under law, so it the law really doesn't function that largely in our life. Well, if we do that, then we've lost sight of not only the gospel, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, God, uh, Christ died to save us from, our, from not only our condemnation, but from the sin itself. So we lose sight of that, but we also lose sight of why the law was ever given in the first place, which is not to condemn, but to give life. So these are the two issues that uh, we want to address this morning as we prepare ourselves to go into the Ten Commandments. Uh, The big idea that I want to show from Galatians 3 and 4 is that we are set free by Christ. We are set free to live as a free people. We're set free from sin in order to live free in Christ. Uh, to to, To reach that conclusion, we need to begin by asking the question, what is the place of the law in the life of a Christian? So it's a question I get a lot in catechism, and, and you've probably asked it yourself or heard someone ask it. Are we really under the law? Sometimes people raise this question when we talk about uh, why do we have the law, uh, the Ten Commandments read in the worship service, and some will say well, we shouldn't have that because we're not, we're not under the law. Now, what is the place of the law? in the life of a Christian. Does a Christian need to obey the law? Well, it's for that reason that we read through a large uh, chunk of the letter to the Galatians. I know it was a long uh, reading, uh, but as I mentioned before, Paul's making a a single sustained argument about what, what is the function of the law in the life of a believer. Uh, both Old Testament and New, what, what, what did the law do then in the life of believers in the Old Testament, and what does that mean for the life of believers today? Now, the way that this is often drastically oversimplified uh, by, by many Christians today is to say, well, in the Old Testament, the people of God were under the law, but now in Christ they're under grace. 
Perhaps you've heard uh, it phrased that way. Now, there is a sense in which this is true. We'll, we'll see that. There is there's one sense in which that's true, but there's, there's a very important uh, sense in which it's not true. Uh, and that when we oversimplify things this way, we'll ultimately lose a clear understanding of, of what the law uh, was for both then and now. So we want to follow carefully the argument that Paul is making here. Uh, The main argument Paul is making in this letter is salvation has always been by grace through faith. Always. It's never been by law keeping ever. Uh, That's true Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, and, And the purpose of the law is not to make you righteous. Uh, uh, the purpose of the law is to teach you a life of faith. To teach us a life of faith. Now, that, that's going to be counterintuitive for some, for some Christians to, to hear that. That the purpose of the law is not, and never was, to make you righteous. Because many Christians have grown up with this sort of law-gospel uh, dichotomy in their heads where the law is always opposed to, to the gospel. Uh, and then uh, in some more extreme versions of this view, every Bible text, every verse is either a, a law verse or, or a gospel verse. And so you read a verse and you say, is that law or is that, is that gospel? And it, it sort of has to fall into one of those categories. And if it's the law, then it condemns. If it's the gospel, then it saves. Uh, According to that view, it's often argued that that God gave the law through Moses, and and the primary purpose of the law was to condemn. It was given as a way to earn your salvation, but God knew, of course, secretly that they weren't going to succeed in actually earning their salvation, and it was given to show them how, how they were going to fail. Uh, and so it, it's believed by some Christians that, that for 3,000 years, from Moses to Christ, Israel lived under the condemnation of the law. It's quite a radical view, and yet it's quite current in Christianity today. Well, what I want to show from these chapters in, in Galatians is that Paul is making a very, very different argument. Uh, he's arguing that the purpose of the law was never uh, the law was never given to Israel as a way of earning eternal life by keeping the law it was rather given to Israel to teach them how to live a life of faith it's not given to make them righteous it's to teach them how to live by faith so listen to what paul says in galatians 3 verse 16 And there he reminds the Galatians that before the law was ever even given through Moses, God had made a promise to Abraham 430 years earlier. And it was always by that promise that the people of God were to be made righteous. So so the argument Paul makes is, if the law had been given to Israel as a way of earning their righteousness, if that had been God's idea in giving the law, it would have nullified a promise that God had made before to Abraham, which is, you are righteous by faith. So he says, verse 17, the law which came 430 years afterwards, that is, after the promises made to Abraham, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, 
then it no longer comes by promise, but God already gave it to Abraham by a promise. So the law cannot have been given as a means of earning your righteousness. Otherwise, it would have annulled the promise to Abraham. Well, too many Christians get that wrong. They, they miss that, and they think that that was the purpose of the law, to, to be a way of earning righteousness. Uh, and, and when you believe that, it really messes up your view of the law, not just in the Old Testament, but also the, the, the place of the law in the life of a believer today. The law is not and never was a means of earning righteousness. Rather, uh, Paul says, the law was set up by God through Moses to function in, as a sort of guardian or teacher in order to secure us in the life of faith. Uh, you notice he uses this illustration of, of a guardian. We'll talk about that uh, more in a second. Uh, so, uh, but the idea is the law, the law is not opposed to the gospel. It's part of the gospel. It's part of the good news, which is why it begins with good news. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, the law is part of the gospel. Yes, it does, it does teach us that we are sinners. It does show how we fail. But along with that, it carries promises that you are not righteous in yourself. You are righteous in Christ. Uh, and the reason we need to get that is because if we don't, then, then what are you going to do with the law as it comes to us in the New Testament applied to Christians today? Does that too become a way of earning righteousness? Or are we able to see this is the life of faith, a life of freedom that God holds before us? So uh, what we need to see then is that Old Testament and New the law is not given as a way to get eternal life. It's a way of proclaiming the gospel and the life that flows from it. So Paul uses this, uh, this illustration of, of a guardian. Uh, a guardian is, is someone who, who would be appointed by the, the father of a household uh, as head of the household. Uh, sometimes these, these wealthier fathers were, were very busy and they didn't spend a whole lot of time with their children. Uh, and so they would appoint a guardian uh, to to take care of their children uh, and rule over their children to lead them to maturity. Now, we might not be familiar with, with that concept, but uh, at least we can, we can understand the idea that, that Paul is uh, portraying. Uh, and then during those years of childhood, uh, the child would be under the authority of that guardian. Uh, he would have to obey that guardian and everything that the guardian tells him to do. Uh, but it's a very interesting relationship, isn't it? If you think of your, put yourself in the shoes of that child, uh, you are technically the, the heir of the household, which means that when you grow up, you are going to rule over that guardian. You're going to be in authority over him, but for the time being, he is in authority over you. Uh, the, the child, uh, a good guardian then, who's ruling over the children, would, would do that with, with an understanding that, one day this kid's going to be my boss. Uh, and so I want to raise him well. Uh, I want to raise him so he learns the heart of his father, that he learns the rules his father has given, that he might also be a good head of household himself. 
Uh, so the function of a guardian, then, is to raise that child according to the values and the priorities of the child's father. Uh, to do so, the guardian would then have to establish certain Rules. You might call them house rules, uh, where where the guardian would say, "This is this is your bedtime. Uh, this is this is your when you have to get up. These are the chores uh, you're going to have to do. Uh, this is the the etiquette we're going to practice around the dinner table. All all these little house rules, uh, which are not necessarily uh, rules of the highest order, uh, but but they are rules set in place to teach you." The, the values and priorities of your father. Uh, when that child then eventually grows up uh, and, uh, and leaves the authority of the guardian, the goal, the goal for that whole relationship uh, is not that he will abide by every one of the last house rules, but that he will have internalized his father's values and priorities. And he might step out and he might change some of the house rules now that he's in a new environment. But if he's been raised well by the guardian, he's learned his father's heart. That's the illustration that that Paul uses to help us think about the law of God in the Old Testament. Uh, When the law was given by Moses, it functioned as a sort of guardian. Uh, As a guardian, uh, it has then two main priorities. One is to teach the people the heart of God, the heart of their Father, uh, to impress upon them the righteousness and holiness of God, uh, to teach them this is what's right, this is what's what's wrong, this is what's holy, this is what's unholy. Uh, and the, section, the second function, in addition to teaching the heart of the Father, uh, is to teach the people the gospel of the Father. Uh, whenever we, we think of the law, when Paul speaks of the law, uh, we, we should recognize he's not just talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the whole of the Torah, all the way from Genesis to Deuteronomy. And that includes not just commandments, but also the ceremonial laws, also the, the construction of the tabernacle, the sacrifices, uh, and so forth, not to mention the, the civil laws, how, how uh, the community and cities will, will function. Uh, when, when God in, uh, instructed Moses in these laws, uh, particularly in, in this construction of the tabernacle, Moses is reminded again and again, make sure you do everything according to the pattern that's shown you on the mountain. Uh, and that pattern, it's a gospel-shaped pattern. The whole of the law was given to teach the gospel, to show them this is your God, this is your Father who set you apart from all the nations to be His own people. You're already under grace. This is how you live as a people who are under grace. Uh, so, so everything in the law, you think of the embroidery on, on the tabernacle or, or the craftsmanship in the gold and silver items of, of, of the uh, tabernacle, all, all of it was rich with gospel meaning. Uh, and this is why the, the Old Testament saints, when they looked back on the law, they, they spoke of it so highly. Uh, they they, they uh, were amazed as they beheld the wonder and majesty of God as they saw him in the law. 
You think of uh, David in Psalm 27, verse 4, where he says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in His temple. Uh, Or as uh, David says in Psalm 119, Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. The law was a picture of God, a picture of the gospel uh, that God wanted Israel to know. And this is, this is why, then, it is such a problematic uh, viewpoint for those who think that, that the Old Testament law was given primarily to condemn, uh, as a way of earning righteousness by works, but God knew you could never actually uh, pull it off. If that was true, if that was God's intention, then how could the saints of the Old Testament express uh, such delight in in God's law? You think of uh, Psalm 119, verse 47, where, where David says, I find delight in your commandments, which I love. If the law was, was nothing but God's means to, uh, to, to show us what utter failures uh, we really are, uh, then how could the saints in the Old Testament have delighted uh, in the law of God as they did? Unless, of course, they were deceiving themselves, believing themselves to be more righteous than they really were. But, of course, that's, that's nonsense. The, the psalmist wrote under the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit. And they were not deceiving themselves. Rather, they were receiving the law as it was intended, which is by faith. Receiving in the law a righteousness that God had already given by faith. They were doing what their father Abraham had also done. Now, that's not to say that there isn't something in the law that condemns. It does. The law does condemn. It condemns those who believe themselves to be righteous on account of their own works. Those people the law does condemn. It condemns those who refuse to receive God's righteousness as a gift uh, and who insist on earning it by their own works. Those people the law condemns. Uh, It condemns those who then abuse the law, treating it as a means to righteousness, which it was not meant to be, instead of living out of the righteousness that the law uh, holds forth in Christ. Uh, So we we saw this a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Lord's Day 32. Uh, This is what Paul says in, in Romans 9, verse 31, referring to the people of Israel. He says, Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness and did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. That's the problem. The law was not supposed to be used that way. It wasn't meant to be a means of becoming righteous by your works. Uh, Those who were using the law in that way uh, were in fact abusing the law, uh, and for them it is true that the law condemns. Uh, so here Paul, Paul teaches us a very important principle uh, that to those who live by works, everything is law and everything condemns. To those, though, who live by faith, everything is gospel and everything is life. Uh, to those who live by works, seeking to justify themselves by their own works, then the law becomes a witness against them. 
Uh, So he says in chapter 3, verse 10, uh, all who rely, that's, that's a word that means trust, right? Resting in, trusting in. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. If that's your plan for getting right with God, uh, being justified before God by virtue of your law-keeping, then the law serves as a witness against you. To those who live by works, uh, the, the law is twisted into something that condemns. Uh, so, for example, the fourth commandment. Take the fourth commandment as an example. You can hardly think of, uh, of a commandment that more uh, beautifully sets forth uh, the gospel. Uh, The fourth commandment is this picture of of resting with God, uh, resting in the peace that that you have by faith uh, through Christ. So the fourth commandment was all about. But to those who live by works, who want to be justified by their works, the fourth commandment gets twisted into something that ultimately condemns them. Instead of resting in Christ, they rest in themselves, and then they are condemned. If you want to live that way, then the law is witness against you. But to those who live by faith, everything in all of the law, everything is gospel. Uh, And that's how God intended the law to be received. It's good news. Uh, uh, We're going to come back to this in a moment, but consider how the law opens uh, with the preface to, to the law, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Is that law that condemns, or is that gospel? Well, it's gospel. Uh, It's gospel at the very opening of the law. Uh, So again, to those who live by faith, everything in God's Word is good news. Everything is a gift. The law is life and joy, just as it was for for the saints in the Old Testament, for the psalmists that we just uh, heard. And this is exactly then what Paul drives home in Galatians 4. The law was meant to be received by faith, not as a means of getting righteous by your works. And he points here to the example of Abraham. He says, Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. He says in chapter 3, verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Uh, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. That was the life God set before the saints in the Old Testament. A life of faith, just as uh, was the case for Abraham. Uh, And and that's the message of the whole law. It's there to teach us how to live by faith. Uh, So he says in in chapter 4, verse 21, uh, he, he says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written in the law that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to the promise. That is recorded in the law. The law itself then, uh, Paul's point with that is, the law teaches us to be free. It teaches us that we are children of the promise. Born to be free, not uh, slaves. 
The law itself testifies against those who would use the law as a means to enslave themselves, believing that that's how they become righteous. The law says, no, live by the promise. Now, that being said, then, uh, I want to go back for a moment to this idea of, of the law as, as guardian. Uh, because it, it is in this sense that you can, you can rightly say we're not under, under the law. Uh, in, in the same way that the people of God were before. Uh, Paul teaches us then again that, that the law is a, a guardian, uh, which means it's not meant to abide forever. Uh, it consisted of, of shadows and illustrations uh, of the gospel that weren't meant to abide uh, because they were meant to point to, to that which would come later. Now, the point of house rules is really not to, to exist for their own sake, uh, but for the sake of the children, to train them in, in righteousness. Uh, you, don't, you don't give a bedtime to your children uh, because you want them to go to bed by 8 o'clock for the rest of, your, of their life. You, you give them a bedtime because you, you say this is what they need now to learn how to go to bed on time, how to be self-disciplined, not to mention, of course, the needs of their own uh, you know, bodily health. Uh, but when children grow up, they're going to put off the house rules uh, and they're going to internalize the righteousness and, and values of, of their parents. Uh, the, in that sense, we are not under the law as the people of God were before. Uh, Paul teaches us in in, uh, chapter 3, verse 25, Now that Christ has come, you're no longer under a guardian, but in Christ Jesus you are sons of God through faith. When we think about then the Old Testament in those terms, it becomes a lot easier to answer the question, are Christians still under the law today? With respect to the house rules, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, we say no. No, Christians are not under the law with respect to those things. Now, if the law served as a guardian, we, we are now grown-up children. Uh, we, we are out from under that guardian. We're not bound to the various house rules, rules about uh, washings or sacrifices or Sabbaths. Uh, we're, we're not under those laws anymore. We recognize them for what they were. They were house rules, temporary things set up to teach us the way of faith. Uh, But that being said, if we are truly mature children uh, of God, mature in Christ, uh, then the idea that Paul sets before us is we ought to have learned what those house rules were intended to teach. We ought to have internalized our Father's values, uh, His righteousness into our hearts. I see the child that says, I'm not under the guardian anymore, uh, so now I get to rebel against my father, uh, and I get to do everything that my father abhors. That child has not learned anything from his guardian. Indeed, he's not a true child of of his father. Uh, So although we, we do leave the house rules behind, we recognize that those house rules are a reflection of what the Father wants us to take in and live by forever. In that sense, the law is still abidingly relevant for us. Although we're not uh, under it in the same sense as the people of God were in that time, we are still under our Father, and it's His law that should be now written on our very hearts. 
It's for this reason that uh, Reformed churches have, have sometimes tried to make a distinction between uh, what, what you might call uh, ceremonial laws uh, and civil laws pertaining to the state and then uh, what, what we call moral uh, laws. Uh, it is somewhat of an arbitrary distinction, uh, but the idea is to try and identify uh, you know, which laws are strike at, at that which is abiding and, and relevant forever. Laws like you shall not murder. That, that's, that's just, it's a reflection of our Father's heart. Uh, it, it's meant to abide forever. Uh, and which laws are, are clearly self-evidently temporary and intended uh, as house rules intended to pass. Now, there's a danger in making those distinctions you might uh, dismiss as, as temporary, that which was abiding, or hold on to as abiding, that which was uh, temporary. Uh, so, uh, for example, some, some have tried to argue that the Ten Commandments are the moral law. The Ten Commandments abide forever. Everything else uh, passes away. Uh, and and some, some will back this up by saying, look, the Ten Commandments were written in stone uh, and, and the rest of the law was written on paper. So you even see a little bit of a, a difference there. Now, there certainly is an abiding quality to the Ten Commandments. They strike very close to, to the unchanging, abiding heart of God. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods but me, that, that's, that's going to be the commandment of God forever. Uh, of course, Christians are still under that uh, law. But even with the Ten Commandments, it, it's really not so easy to make such a distinction. Uh, when it comes to the Fourth Commandment, for example, at least part of that commandment is ceremonial. We don't keep the seventh day. We now worship God uh, on the first day. Uh, there's, there's something there that was written on stone that does not abide for the children of God today. Uh, so, although you can be helped by, by making those sorts of distinctions, we, we should not oversimplify things. It would be very nice and easy if we could just say, Ten Commandments are forever, everything else is, is temporary, uh, but it's really not so simple. Uh, likewise, if you're looking at that which was written on paper, uh, outside of the Ten Commandments, you're going to find areas of the law that are clearly abiding and forever, uh, even though they were spoken to Moses and not written in stone. For example, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your uh, mind, uh, or with all your might. That, that's what the Lord Jesus even says is, is the law of God forever. That's the heart of the law. Or Leviticus nineteen eighteen, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, so, although we can be helped by, by trying to draw these, these distinctions, you can't rest in them. You can't oversimplify them. Uh, rather, what we're called to do is see the whole of the law. This is the way that Paul speaks. The whole of the law uh, as a reflection of God's will, as a guardian uh, under which we were taught to discern the heart of our God, uh, to discern by the Spirit what the will of God is for us today. And you'll notice that's exactly, if you carried on in Galatians, that's exactly where Paul goes in Galatians 5. Uh, right after he's finished uh, telling us you're not under law but under grace, uh, it, you, some might find it ironic that Paul then goes to give us some, some laws that we are now to, to live by. Uh, so he says we're free in Christ, 
But then he says, but now don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but love, uh, through love, serve one another. For the law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he tells us, you're not under the law, but then he proceeds to give us a law. Uh, and, and then to flesh that out even further, if you look at Galatians 5, 16-24, he gives, he gives a list of things that are forbidden and things that are commanded. Sounds like, sounds like laws. And he, he even warns us there, those who, who do such things that are forbidden uh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So then, are we under the law or not? Or are we under a, a new law? No, what Paul's teaching us is you're under the Spirit. That's what the law was given for, to teach you how to live by faith with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. You are under God. Uh, if indeed you are mature children, uh, you, you study the law of God to learn from that guardian what God your Father wants from you, and you live accordingly. Uh, once again, we need to approach the whole thing as gospel. If you don't see the gospel in the law, then you will not find it anywhere else. It's not righteousness that's earned by works. It's righteousness given to us in Christ and a new life that we're then called to live. It's part of the good news. As we saw before, Christ died to save us, not just from the guilt of sin, but from the sin itself, to heal us and make us into new people. So just a couple of words then to finish on. Words of application for the coming weeks as we head into the Ten Commandments. Uh, In the first place, let us study the law of God, the Ten Commandments, with the purpose of seeing the goodness of God in the Ten Commandments uh, and the life that God has set forth in front of us. What we want to recognize as we look at the commandments is that sin is death. Sin is death, uh, and to live according to the will of God is life. So let's make it our purpose uh, at at each commandment uh, to see the life, beauty, and goodness of God our Father as He expresses it in His law. Secondly, as the law exposes your sin, which it will do uh, in the coming weeks, if you're willing to let your heart be exposed bare before the law of God, As the law exposes your sin, hold on to the gospel. Do not let go of the gospel. There's going to be times as we're listening to the law of God and it convicts us of sin that we're going to be tempted uh, to start thinking as if I need to try harder. Uh, I need to start earning uh, my my righteousness and and get myself up up to standard here. Uh, we're going to, uh, and as we fail in that, uh, we're going to be tempted to start excusing our sins and diminishing uh, our failures. Uh, things like, you know, yes, yes, I know I do that, but at least I don't do that. It's an excuse. That's the sort of thing that comes from a heart that relies on itself, that relies on its own works. Don't do that. Hold on to the gospel. Don't let your heart take you down a road that leads to condemnation. Instead, hold on to Christ in whom uh, you are truly and eternally righteous before God. Just like Abraham, your father, your righteousness is by faith in a gift of God's grace. Don't bother looking for it in your works.
Uh, And then thirdly, finally, remember that God's purpose for you in Christ is to be free. Sin, sin is slavery, and it's slavery that leads to death. It's misery. And true freedom uh, is found in the perfect righteousness of God to which he, he calls you and which he's bought for you. Uh, so having our sin exposed by the law is painful, uh, and dealing with it is hard, but freedom is worth it. So let's let God, as it were, take us by the hand and lead us down the path that leads to greater and greater freedom as we rest in the gospel. Amen. Let's respond to God's word by singing from Psalm 119, stanzas 1 through 3, and then also 39 and 40.